Are cyber attacks becoming more sophisticated or more frequent? Do people care anymore? Do businesses care anymore? As these threats rise in frequency and the monetary damage continues to increase, why aren't businesses taking the necessary steps to protect their systems, data, and customers? Anthony Johnson is the managing partner and CISO of Delvrisk. And during a roundtable discussion with Rohit Prachuri, who at the time of the recording was the CISO for Collective Health and now holds the same position for Yext, Johnson and Prachuri spoke at length about the threat cybersecurity poses today. Cyber can be fully catastrophic to a company. A big enough cyber event could delete the backups, could delete the ability of the company to operate and just completely wipe the organization out. And there is not another threat that can be as macro systemic to any one organization. Those are strong words from Anthony. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Anthony and Rohit discuss a host of topics, including how recent events have shifted the spotlight onto network security. And they debate whether security breaches will even make a difference in the long run. The two also touch on why security can often take a backseat to the goals of the company. To learn more, keep listening. IT Visionaries is brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the world's most trusted low-code platform. Enhance trust, compliance, and governance across all your apps with Salesforce security. Learn more at salesforce.com slash data security. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today, we have a special guest, two special guests. We have a roundtable, Anthony Johnson and Rohit Parchuri. I am going to let them introduce themselves. But before we do, just letting everyone know, today we're going to talk about a whole bunch of cybersecurity-related topics. We're going to talk about how we secure work from home, how we know what's on our network, how can you be sure what's going on, and we're also going to talk about some current events. But before we dive into that, Anthony, Rohit, why don't you introduce yourselves, let our audience know who you are, who you work for, and you're both CISOs, but you're welcome to say what what your title is again. Cool. Awesome. I'll I'll just jump in. So Anthony Johnson, uh, managing partner at Delve Risk. Uh, We do market research, studying Fortune 1000 companies um, in the cyber programs. Formerly, I was a CISO at uh, Fannie Mae, GE Treasury, and JP Morgan. So the corporate investment bank there is the largest bank in the world. Happy to be here. Look forward to the chat today. Awesome. Rohit. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me here. It's a real pleasure to actually share the stage with Anthony. So I'm currently the CISO for Collective Health. Uh, so I manage our cyber security and privacy program at Collective Health. Uh, as a company, we're a benefits platform provider, uh, where we basically consolidate all health-related services to our self-funded employer health plans. And in a sense, that means, one, we're in a heavily regulated industry uh, with the HIPAA, you know, and a bunch of other laws that are uh, you know, kind of dictating the business structure, but also there's uh, heavy reliance on the partners uh, and vendors that we you know, work with uh, from an ecosystem standpoint. Formerly, I was with Rackspace and ServiceNow, you know, still in security, mostly focused on the network security to begin with. And now uh, I kind of, you know, dabble my feet into the CISO role, which is more comprehensive way of looking security, I guess. So that's, that's me. So this is fantastic. We have people from HIPAA and Anthony, you're formerly FINRA, right? More intently. So highly regulated, highly technical industries. Obviously, this type of data is in demand. But before we dive into this this new situation of securing work from home for enterprises. Let's talk about security overall and with this current event of what's happening. At the time of this recording, the Colonial Pipeline was basically hijacked ransomware just a few days ago. Prices in the southeastern United States for gas have already gone through the roof. 
in North Carolina, where I'm at, people are in in panic mode, right? They're in panic mode. There, there are people pumping gas into plastic bags. Please, people, do not do that. That is very, very unwise. You are literally driving a bomb at that point when you're doing that. But at the core of the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack was bad actors taking over the data specifically of the pipeline production. And when we think about what we, where we are today in modern day, it's really interesting to think about how sensitive and fragile our systems, our infrastructure, everything that we rely on is on this data. They didn't bomb the pipeline. They didn't blow something up. They took over the data and made it virtually inoperable. Now they've come back and apologized and said, hey, we didn't mean to shut down the United States and you guys can turn the pipe back on. Here's your data back. But it's just, and you know, now oil gas production is delayed by, you know, a week or something. Let's talk to the fragility of systems and let's talk to about like what it means to be a CISO in today's time frame because you would think something that's it feels innocuous to me like data and pipeline i don't think it matters but like i mean it's virtually it's pretty much like a terrorist attack it shut down multiple states of our of our country just overnight just like that i'll start with anthony i'd love to hear your perspective on talk about like the role of the CISO. talk about the current event that's just happening just kind of like just your opinions on what's going on what you guys need to do what you're faced with in general of how how to prevent this kind of thing from happening Sure. Um, so I think the, the role of the CISO fundamentally is to be able to, A, articulate the value prop of cybersecurity, but really help the organization to make the right decision on how to make that investment, right? And I think the colonial piece, this is this, the colonial pipeline attack is really interesting because everybody is talking about like, oh my gosh, this is a, a wake-up call, a watershed moment. Now, actually, I disagree. I don't think so. This is the equivalent of wearing a suit made of hundred dollar bills and then walking down a crowd, crowded space and, and being surprised <laughs> that you don't have any hundred dollar bills left after you've gotten through all these people, right? Like it's a private company. They had, you know, the, the net revenue of $421 million last year and their cybersecurity program is nominal, minuscule. Like in my view, from a corporate leadership perspective, this is pretty egregious. And I think that they usually, this is where I kind of view, I'm a little bit different than some people where they're like, oh, I feel bad for them. I'm like, they just weren't doing their job. And I think their leadership team needs to be held accountable for it. I so much agree with you on that, Anthony, especially given <laughs> the, the education awareness that, you know, companies need to really have in terms when, when you talk about, you know, how the current exposure to technology happens, you know, in the broader industry and how cyber kind of plays a vital role within that. And given the size of the company, given the size of the revenue that you generate, and most importantly, critical infrastructure you know, of the country, like there has to be some kind of reliance and in terms of how you manage your risk, you know, both at the company level and also going broader than that. Because I think as an industry, we rely heavily on our suppliers and we, we're you know, surely going to talk about the supply chain in a much broader context. But this, this is a great example of having you know, what kind of control do you have as an organization and where exactly those links don't really uh, you know, connect together in a way that you feel the cyber resilience aspect of things should actually be considered when you think about it at a company level. And this is not so different, like even going beyond colonial, right? This is not so different you know, in the other industries as well. And connecting more specific to healthcare, the same kind of example manifests itself over and over again. We rely heavily on our ecosystem. We rely heavily on the partners. And that itself is a huge risk if you don't really understand the ins and outs and how do you want to you know, go about it. You know, I think Anthony touched on this in terms of how you educate the, the company. When we say company, we really are talking about the leaders, uh, the executives, the board. Do they understand what exactly is at risk? 
do they know how to execute on the risk? Like what exactly is the management look like? So I think these are all the factors, you know, that's like a concoction in terms of how you look at cyber. And in my personal opinion, I feel that's lacking in the industry. And I think we should certainly do a better job at you know, understanding that even further. The reason why I'm so fascinated by this is because I guess most people think of like, uh, you know, a pipeline is like a game of physics, right? It's got liquid on one side, it's got pumps on the other, and it's got to send it from A to B, right? It's a matter of physics. People don't think like, oh, there's a lot of data involved in that transaction. But we do, of course, we know there are. There's sensors up and down the whole thing that are constantly monitoring how much flow and it just leakage and stuff like that. I would love to hear your opinions on how could something like this be missed? Because we've, of course, heard of critical infrastructure being taken down by weather systems, right? Like what happened in Texas, weather systems knocked down your grid. You didn't put in the investment to prepare your grid for that. That's one thing. But this seems like a blatantly obvious, like why wouldn't I protect this data? Why wouldn't I secure this transactional data? Because yes, it's just measuring like, let's say gallons of flow per minute. But if you don't know it, you don't know if it's pumping. Like it just showed like just turning off this one data piece, just boom, shut it down. Because corporately there, there is not a, um, there, there's not really a detriment to it, right? Like I have a practice of where I buy on breach. A company gets hacked and I buy their stock market uh, stock after it drops uh, you know, 20 points. And there's only one stock that has not recovered yet from that. And I'm only upside down on one holding, right? And it was knocking and getting back up there, right? Now, Colonial is a, is a private company. I would not be surprised. And, and I say this because we, we advise a number of CISOs as well, but I would not be surprised if someone would be like, man, they're still on Windows 7. Like, I'd be like, oh, makes sense, right? Like there are so many organizations on legacy kit infrastructure and they don't actually have a business ramification or justification to where they agree to upgrade their OS or patch the systems appropriately, right? Because what's the worst that's going to happen? Their website went down. They're not publicly traded. They're going to get yelled at, have to do some meetings. At the end of the day, they, are, they have a 31% margin on, the, on their operations and they increased, they increased profitability last year. Like, that leadership team may not be comfortable, but in six months, they'll be back to BAU. That is a fascinating point right there. Next time I see a data breach, I didn't even really think about it. I mean, has Equifax rebounded? I haven't even followed. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Crushed it. <laughs> crushed it. Capital One crushed it. When like Target, Marriott, they've all had like huge breaches. All well over what happened. The only company that hasn't recovered yet is SolarWinds. Um, it dropped over 40 points um, and it's already recovered 25% of that um, backup. So they're only like 20, 20% away from their market high, right? Like, and that's solar winds in yeah, like there's, that's the only one out of all the breaches. All right. Well, now I got to ask, like, why is he, why? So that makes it seem like the pain is very short term. You know, the pain is very short term and it can be overcome. So you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass this question to Rohit, like, you know, in, from your perspective, is that an actual problem, that mindset? Is that a problem among leaders because of that? It's like, it's like, it's short term. It's super embarrassing to, of course, let all this data be captured or lost. But in the long run, it's not a really big deal. Is that a problem? Is that a problem mindset? I think it is. But also, I think you got to keep in mind there are different verticals and different business segments you got to focus on, right? If, if you're in a, like, I think we spoke about this heavily regulated industry, like in finance or healthcare. It, you're not just looking at the brand equity damage. You're not just looking at the reputational risk, but also the regulatory, you know, and the compliance comes into comes into the mix. So there are fines associated with that. I wouldn't say there's a long-term damage, but there's a tarnish. 
in how you conduct your operations and business. There's that element, but again, you know, coming back to the stocks, and I think you know myself included, I start to invest on those stocks too. Oh dang, yeah. man! You guys are you know all these secrets, man. You gotta be <laughs> keeping me up. These are the real Doge fathers right here, man. We, they... <laughs> Sometimes ignorance is bliss, Albert. This is the this is the ultimate tip. I think those are the things that you would benefit off of, like when you're in this industry, right? I think you know, just given the data breaches that are happening, you're kind of in the middle of that. You kind of know how the pendulum swings, but not not too far, but no, I, I think I think long term it it kind of comes back. The pendulum swings back, but there's also other aspects to it. It's just not the finance you know you got to be thinking about. And you know one of the one of the risk elements that we focus on is you know of course you know given given the the hippers and the high trust that we work with, I think that's a big component. Uh, we also quantify that in terms of how much damage that it could be, in terms of the dollars that we'd be lost uh, that we'd be losing. You know not just we're not a public company, so we don't really where you build the stocks ourselves, but there's an aspect of, you know, the valuation and also how this affects the business contracts that we have in place. But it is a problem. I'm, I'm just going to leave it at that. It is a problem. And I think business leaders, you know, there's, there's a tendency to not put the right context into place when, you know, things such as these actually happen, like a breach or, you know, some kind of an incident. Uh, I think there has to be more effort put into that and really understand, you know, the, the macroeconomical, you know, factors that fit into that aspect too. I think one thing though, like if you, if you look at like, I'll pick on another another breach. United Health Services, right in uh, September, and I just just pulled up the the chart. The stock was at one hundred twenty dollars. It dropped down to one hundred dollars. Sounds bad. And today it's trading at you know one hundred and fifty four, right? For a company, and, and this is where like it, it, it's it sounds bad because they're like you know we had to pay sixty seven million dollars due to the cyber breach. Okay, they had net net revenue of you know, $11.5 billion, right? That's $67 million. Small investment. It's interesting. Like, okay, <laughs> if I'm the CEO, am I going to dramatically change my corporate behavior for it? It would cost me more just to change the corporate behavior. So let's talk about how cybersecurity, information security gets taken more seriously. Because we know that the entry points, part of the discussion that we originally came to table was, you know, what is going to happen or what's currently happening with work from home, right? So, yeah. Rohit, you, you talked about like FINRA, HIPAA compliant businesses. The reality is now you got to transfer this information across more, let's call them gateways, right? Instead of going through an enterprise HQ on a private network, you're now, of course, transferring data to people's houses, living rooms everywhere, RSA tokens everywhere, VPNs are going everywhere. Like that's what has to happen now, right? And so, with that proliferation of gateways is just simply the more opportunities for insertions for attack, potentially loss, breach, whatever the case may be. And then, Anthony, you kind of hit on it a moment ago, which is like, if you're a big enough company, it's a small investment. It's, it, if you, if, let's put it this way. It's a big investment if you just do it. It's a small investment in comparison to like what happens at a breach. And how do we get businesses to, or business leaders to really think more about this? Because these attacks, like let's say, for example, we, we saw what happened in the Colonial Pipeline, like one attack can just take your whole company down, right? And I'm assuming this can happen, of course, with any company, especially like Collective Health, which is an information-based company. Like if information ain't flowing, like what are you selling? Like, you have nothing, <laughs> right? Talk to me about like, well, how, how does the investment mindset change for leaders? Because they do have to start thinking more about potentially newer technologies that they didn't invest in previously in order to secure networks that are now going to proliferate across homes versus uh, enterprise hubs. So I think, uh, you know, a few ways, like, I think we hit on this a little bit ago about the education and awareness is super important and for the right people at the company. 
And that really means, you know, we're not only talking about the impact this could create, like a technical impact this could create or a financial impact, but also what's the potential risk in the future in terms of the businesses that you would, you know, actually be you know, contracting with. What's the business revenue in general that you're looking at? Because now we see the laws or regulatory bodies that are actually becoming more and more of a requirement and a standard than a mere guideline that it used to be in the past. You can see this, you know, privacy laws that are, you know, coming up. I think every state is going to have one very soon. And literally, there's no escape. You got to do this, right? Again, I'm not going to say that's, you know, some kind of a universal remedy that at least starts as a baseline for you to begin with, the compliance guidelines. But that kind of helps you put things into perspective. The reasons we're doing this is not just to do a tick box kind of effort, but there's, you know, broader, you know, broader solution that we're thinking about. And, you know, if you think about the contractual agreements or strategic partnership agreements, these are all the requirements now. But also, you know, it'd be remiss if I don't mention the bigger fish there's to fry, right? The scale and sophistication of these attacks right now are becoming more and more sinister in nature. We spoke about Colonial Pipeline, you know, what's a better example than that, than what happened in the past, right? So, and also I think this the survey shows, I believe this is coming from the, the data breach report from Verizon, that 88% of the, the total losses that company has attributed to specifically cyber incidents in the past five years, which is a pretty significant number. If you talk about the global impact ratio to the cyber versus non-cyber, that's a pretty high risk. And I think you got to fit in, how do you quantify those risks and relate those into the company terms so they exactly understand what exactly the impact is right now and also in the future. And certainly remote workforce is not helping within that regard. Yes, it's, you know, it's something that is, you know, flexible for the employees and, you know, there's really no other way for us to do it. We have to do it. But, but I think these are all the things you have to put in, put into perspective for leaders to actually see what exactly that means for cyber. And also, I think be honest, brutally honest in some cases about what exactly is at risk and stake, you know, in terms of how you do business across, across different lines for us specifically, I'm going to talk about collective health maybe for a bit. Most of the work that we do is below the surface. It's not really visible this iceberg that you don't see. The bread and butter of healthcare mostly happens with the partnerships that we deal with. And these alliances are, you know, how we provide the benefits and services to our clients. And so within that, there's a huge risk exposure in how you do it because we're mostly dealing with antiquated processes and workflows, you know, within healthcare. And this is not too surprising. You know, a good example would be you would have a paper trail of PHI that comes to your office. You got to figure out how you store that. Uh, and also digitize that to ePHI. And now there's an additional you know, point of concern. How do you, you know, carry that on? So this is a simple example, but there's so many things that you know, fall into that realm. And it, it really, I think that the education is so important that you need to make them aware and also show the perspective of what, what exactly this means business. So let me take a little bit, um, j- jump on that a little bit. I think that there's a, there is a big piece of where... Um, Companies before ideally would say, we don't want to breach, consumers are going to hate it, they're not going to come back and buy. And then you realize, no, consumers are so desensitized at this point that the behavior is really not going to change. It is, if Uber had a massive breach, it's going to be very few people who are like, man, I'm never using Uber again. They're going to be like, man, that sucked. I hope I get some free Uber dollars for it. It's a very short-term reaction for sure. Short-term reaction. Like Marriott had the data breach. Like, I'm never staying in Marriott. No, nah, Marriott's still doing great. I mean, post-pandemic, they're going to be booked. That's exactly right. So what you have then is you have, instead of companies operating from a, a sense of consumer or market dynamics, instead they look at and be like, oh, well, the regulator's going to find. People care about PHI 
largely, I would say, yes, we care about it because it's consumers and we want to protect the privacy, yada, yada. The data has been breached 19 billion times from every single company out there. And so now you have most organizations that are really reacting to the regulatory fines. Um, and so they're saying, hey, if I, if I get a breach here, I'm going to have to pay this fine. And what you end up with is this really interesting dynamic of people just doing that as a cost of doing business, right? With the exception of GDPR being they can find you for X percent of your, your global revenue. It's like, I, I had a friend, this is a guy I met, and uh, I remember he was like, yeah, I park in handicap spots. And I'm like, dude, you're going to get fined. He's like, no, that's just a cost. And I'm like, you have a totally different mindset of where he's like, yeah, it just costs $500 to park there. And he's okay with paying you know, that fee if he, got, if he got caught, which is how companies think about things in a, lot of, in a lot of ways. It ties directly into the work from home though, because the, um, the behavior of individuals at, at home has dramatically shifted. And I'll give you a really great example. I spoke to the Federal Reserve of Cleveland in November about this topic. Should banks be responsible for doing background checks on somebody's roommate? Um, it seems like it would not be necessary, but dive in. If somebody's responsible for fund transfers, moving money, dealing with sensitive consumer account information, should the bank worry about that their roommate was previously convicted of wire fraud? And because who, who actually walks away and locks their computer at home? Nobody. No, it's on my table. <laughs> so, so you have this whole dynamic of as consumers, we may be like, well, the bank should do that. Like, should they? Where do, we, where do we draw risk tolerance? How do we think about what's actually flexible? We haven't had real meaningful conversations of what's acceptable risk tolerance, what's acceptable controls. And then the last thing I'll say is like, like at JP Morgan, we would write off $2 billion a year in fraud losses. $2 billion, right? With JP Morgan credit cards. Nobody liked to do it, but it was just the cost of doing business, right? We weren't writing off $2 billion a year in cyber losses. So to be like, oh, cyber, cyber is important. Got it. But the company had a risk tolerance of $2 billion a year. Every credit card company has a comparable size. You know what? We're going to have a bunch of fraud. We're not going to invest more to fix it. We're just going to eat $2 billion a year. Let's take a quick pause to remind you that today's episode is brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Now, let's get back to the conversation. It's a different view, certainly. And I totally get it, right? Where people are, where a business, if I'm like, Let's remove the word cyber threat sure. and just look at like it's a spreadsheet of this is my threats and it's a dollar value. And I said, you know, like you said, you can circle the top three. It sounds like cyber losses might not be in the top three. Therefore, it doesn't get the attention. I think cyber is important, A, because we, um, from an optics perspective, right? Yeah. But like my, my favorite example is this. Take any company, they had a magic lamp, they could rub the lamp and then tomorrow the company would make $100 billion profit. Yeah. But they're definitely going to get hacked. That leadership team is going to have the conversation. <laughs> like the question is whether the CISO gets invited to the conversation or not. <laughs> but they're going to make a decision and my bet is they're going to be like, well, everyone will be mad. We'd spend 10 billion dollars. It would suck for 6 months, but we would make 90 billion rub the lamp. So in your in your mind, give us where do you stand on its investment, right? Cybersecurity I mean, it feels important. It seems necessary. But then I also, I, I, will agree, I will agree with you on this one thing. A lot of companies that I see now that are born in the cloud, they don't seem to be as worried about it. They don't issue RSA tokens. They don't make people VPN to services. They're just going straight to cloud services as they need them. They're subscribing to SaaS products. Highly unlikely that they're 
kind of like what Rohit you said earlier, which is like I don't know if they're investigating their chain, their supply chain of information. They're plugging in. We're using tool, middleware tools. Like we'll plug our sponsor, Salesforce MuleSoft. They might be using Zapier. They're using something to transfer data from one product to another product. It does not feel like, from what I can tell from some of these born and cloud companies, that cybersecurity is really that important. They're just kind of like my partners have it. It's not a big deal. Yeah, I think that. Born in the cloud solutions typically will try to have security more integrated into the stack so that where enforcement is going to be more of an automated component from a refreshment, like a, a rehydration piece here. And I think that's probably what they're banking on. But to your point, they're not researching it. They're not you know, effectively challenging and digging into it. I think supply chain is a massive aspect. And I, and I don't mean to be too cynical. What, I think the question that I struggle with from you know, cyber leaders in general is like, we still are having the same conversations we had 20 years ago about like, man, if, if only we could, you know, scan the network and patch the thing, like user identity. Yeah. Passwords suck. Like literally it's the same conversation from 20 years ago. Right. There's a scale has changed, right? Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, also to that very point, maybe this is, this is out of curiosity, Anthony, when you said $2 billion, you know, that's something you write off in JP Morgan. So is that like a risk appetite discussion? Is that how you quantify the cyber, you know, within the broader you know, companies, uh, finance books, things of that nature? So I, I think this is where cyber differs just a little bit. And I agree with J.D. Diamond in his statement on this. Cyber can be fully catastrophic to a company. A big enough cyber event could delete the backups, could delete the ability of the company to operate and just completely wipe the organization out. And there is not another threat that can be as macro systemic to any one organization, right? Um, you could blow up a building, that's going to suck. But you're still going to have the data, the people, you're going to have all, all, all of these components. So I, th- I think cyber is different um, from that perspective. What that means, though, is that most organizations haven't done the right risk balance to say, hey, how do we, how, how do we manage this? Because most boards will say things like, we have zero tolerance for any cybersecurity event. Like, that's not a realistic risk appetite. Like, you're going to have something. So how do you measure, you know, what's enough, what's appropriate? And then you, once you can get to that conversation, you get a meaningful conversation of um, the level of investment that you need to have. It's funny. The reason I asked that specifically, you know, for, for us, the, we don't really have the hard and fast numbers specifically for the risk tolerance either. But, you know, in the recent past, we started, you know, calculating the, of course, the breaches and how that measure up to the impact. And for each health identifier that's actually being compromised within the PHI data set, we, we have a certain number, right? This is just based on the market data, but that's how we quantify it and then you know, promote that to some kind of a risk appetite score. But still, that doesn't really convey the, the big story. You know, it talks about the regulatory fees. It talks about you know, where, how you've got to respond to clients and you know, the agencies, but you know, there's, there's so, much, you know, so much more at stake when you think about cyber in general. But also one, one more thing I wanted to point out, you know, as part of the previous discussion, we speak about the cloud first approach and we're the same, right? We, we are born in cloud, operating cloud. Uh, but, you know, it's funny when we talk about that approach, there's also the hybrid approach. You do have legacy systems. You do have on-prem systems that are outside of the cloud. And yes, there's a mechanism how you connect, you know, these systems to the cloud. But that's where I, I feel the biggest risk is because a lot of people don't really know what the assets themselves are mm-hmm. and how access is being managed, right? This is where the shadow assets comes into play. And that's, that's like opening a can of worms. I don't even want to go there. But, you know, it's, it's just the fact that we, we are in a place where we don't really have the situational awareness to begin with. 
before we even go out and start patching systems like Anthony mentioned about, right? And how do we go about, you know, doing the vulnerability management, you know, all sorts of things that we think, you know, should fit into the risk management, but you got to start somewhere. And that baseline is not really defined in, you know, many places that I've, you know, been exposed to. Yeah, I I think that's a really, really great, great point. And like I was talking to a buddy, he's a CISO, large CIO, uh, large organization, um, uh, Fortune company, and uh, they have a, a client, another Fortune company. And I wish I was making this up. That client has a plan to migrate to Windows Seven. What? Let that settle in. Like, wait, wait, wait. Windows Seven is how many years old now? Right. Like, I think fifteen years old at least, isn't it? That is like they have an internal plan to migrate the team to to the organization. I'm like, holy, like, how is that okay? And how is that a publicly traded company? Oh God. Right. Like, it, it, it's just fascinating where wow. you get business leaders that are like, you know what? We're pretty good with XP. XP is still <laughs> like, you know, it's just wild to me. Is this company in uh so I did work for a company that was in aggregate, which is there's only two big ones, but for if you guys are listening and don't know, there's rocks. People make rocks. All the asphalt comes from one of two companies. <laughs> it comes from Vulcan or it comes from Martin Marietta. All right. It's like you're laughing, <laughs> but like they make rocks, right? Like and you would be like, oh, how can you make money off rocks? Yo, you need a lot of rock to make a uh, to make concrete. <laughs> to make <laughs> these guys have huge industrial machines. But to your point, if you looked at their infrastructure at the time, it was. I mean, you, I couldn't believe it. it. Some of them looked like MS, like dot matrix printers. Like I couldn't believe what, what I was seeing. And like they didn't have fear of cybersecurity because like, well, it's not online. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, dude, but that's it. And the thing about it, like, you're the CEO of this company. And you're like, you're like, man, we're, we're using Windows XP. And someone comes to you and like, listen, we got to go. We got to migrate. We got to update this thing. It's going to cost us $40 million. And you're like, oh, hold on, hold on. Like $40 million. And the network's going to be down. Like, ah, I don't know about that. Right. Like I can go for 10 years, save that $40 million and eat a $300 million cyber cost and still make $100 million profit on, 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 the, on the net here. Right. It's, it's just a different mindset, I think, that when, you, when you're running a business. All right. So let's let's think of your business as like where you are an information-based business, right? So like everything you sell is critical. Like you have no hard goods. You're not manufacturing any hard goods. Like you clearly depend on the transfer of information to keep things going. You know, if I think back to like, uh, I don't know, what would be a great example? I can't, I'm, I feel like a Bloomberg terminal would be a great example, but I feel like yeah. people would figure a way around it. But like if Bloomberg got compromised and all the data got taken out somehow, that'd be pretty bad, I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it'd be irrecoverable, but it would be certainly, certainly bad news. Talk a little bit about, you know, if the mission is critical, how does one begin to evaluate what is priority? Because like you said, you could probably spend to infinity on security and still not actually be secured because someone always will figure out a way to like maybe penetrate your systems and architecture, right? There's tons of both hardware and software applications, services, managed services. Everyone says they have a way to protect you. I don't believe anyone is totally true. I think people can de-risk you. I don't know about true protection, like, you know, 0% chance of attack. I don't believe in that because someone's always coming up with something. How do you, Rohit, ha- evaluate? And then I'm going to pass it to Anthony. How do like companies need to evaluate? Rohit, how do, you, how do you begin to even evaluate all these options? Because, I mean, really could. You could probably spend to infinity, like, you know what I mean? And still not be protected. <laughs> That's a great question. Like, first and foremost, you got to really understand the business to begin with, right? How does your cyber plan align with the business objectives that you have in play? And what exactly is the strategy in terms of the business itself? 
Like, are you focused on a specific element within, you know, within the industry at large, or, you know, are you tackling number of different things where you might be exposed to either advertently or inadvertently, right? So things of that, you know, play a huge role. First of all, you know, that's the first step, right? You know, as a security leader, you are an enabler to begin with. You're not really saying that, okay, I'm a policing agent. I'm going to come in and block everything that you're doing. If you don't have a business run, you don't really have security anymore. So that's, that's the first step, right? You know, think about that, let that settle in and then start with some kind of a benchmark to begin with. And, you know, we could take help of you know, a number of different things. Like, for example, you have risk frameworks that you have at play. You know, you could, you could start thinking about the maturity models, things of that nature. For me, everything begins with like, what exactly is the board and executive team focused on? And how does my plan, you know, go into that? And from a cyber standpoint, everything I'm looking at begins with compliance. Like I said, you know, the regulated industries, of course, that's where we begin at the very least. And that's how we kind of, you know, you know, pass over the culture uh, across the company. Hey, this is why, this is why it's important. And these are the things that we have to, we're obligated to do. So technically that kind of, you know, sets them in a path where, you know, we can at least start taking, you know, simple actions. The next step for me is to threat model, effectively threat model, you know, the business and also understand, you know, where exactly the threat factors and also what adversary groups are we exposed to in the first place, then you can take more tailored approach and, you know, what kind of risks are you exposed to? Like, how do you go tackle those risks? You, you can't really, you know, take over the, you can't think about, you know, the industry at large and, you know, think about all the risks that apply to your business and, you know, go take a chunk at it. It's just not realistic. So I think you got to be narrow focused and figure out what exactly, you know, that means to your business and then tackle it that way. For a few things that work for me, you know, within that threat model mindset is one, really understand the motivations of the attacker groups towards collective health. And second, also see if any of those motivations directly apply to the systems and workflows that we have in play, not just within the company, but also how we do the interactions with our, you know, external entities and, you know, partners again come into picture. You know, most, most often we see the attack vectors not coming from or not coming directly to you, but coming through uh, different channels especially from the partners, where you don't really have a lot of control. Neither do you have control on your data that's actually being disseminated to these partners, nor do you have control over the systems that are actually capturing and storing that information, especially your information, right? So one positive thing that actually came out of that is for us to actually set up bastion hosts to effectively control the data, strip off the PHI before you when we send that information out. You know, mo most often we don't realize that most of this information is not really useful for the supplier or for the external entity that we're sending out to, like having a mindset about, okay, you know, just follow the principle of least privilege to begin with, like what exactly you need, break it down and, you know, keep everything in house that you can control as a data processor. And then, you know, only send out the information that's relevant for that business to work. But at the same time, also make sure, you know, how exactly the systems are being managed and what kind of cyber, you know, maturity exists in those companies too. I think a combination of both would be helpful to at least put the trajectory in place. And then we can talk about the culture, the training and everything falls in, but, you know, setting that mission and vision from a cyber standpoint and align that to company's vision, I think it, it's, it's certainly the first step. For me, I, so I actually, um, so surprised, I'm not actually a big fan of threat models in general. My logic is if I'm walking down the street and I get mugged, I don't care why the person mugged me. I just care that I got mugged. Mm -hmm. So I have a completely different framework um, that I've used for, for a lot of the CIOs, CEOs, and CISOs even that I, that I coach and work with. And it's a, I call it a four by four. You think of that there's really four reasons why a company gets hacked. You know, they want some money, they want to see the world burn, some intellectual property, 
right? Um, or there's some sort of a social reason. If those are the motives, then what I really care about is the level of sophistication. So I call that Joey, Joe, Joseph, and Yosef. <laughs> Joey is the equivalent of a 12-year-old kid where it's going to be open source, free type of capabilities. Joe is going to be that 19-year-old, 20-year-old college student, some basic tech capabilities. Joseph is a, think about it, a 40-year-old, somebody who built the infrastructure and kit. Um, and Yosef is truly that nation-state trained threat actor, right? At that point, I don't care what their motivation is, except for understanding that the way a 12-year-old is going to, the TTPs associated with a 12-year-old for data exfiltration or land and expand are going to be very dramatically different than what a Joseph who has been with the company for 20 years and actually built the network infrastructure. So, so you can kind of look at the, the Joey-level threats. And most of the breaches that we've had across industry are Joey-level threats, right? We've had a few Joe-level threats. Everybody likes to say, oh, it was Russia. And then you look and you're like, yeah, but they, they used a seven-year-old vulnerability that the pact. You're talking about solar winds now. Right, like I'm just saying, right, yeah. hypothetically. Right? <laughs> um, so yes, it's Russia, but they didn't have to do any fancy backflips. They kind of just walked in and like pushed you over. Um, and the reason why I like this model is that like you can talk to, to, to legal counsel and once they kind of get this model in their head, they're like, oh, so that's a Joey level threat. Like, yeah, there's no scenario where a CISO or security team should be able to go to their board and say, we got hacked by the equivalent of like three 12 year olds. They're really mean though, right? Yeah. Like that just doesn't work. Um, and, and then we should have commensurate investment because the Joey and Joe level threats should be automated detection built into the security tools so that you don't have analysts trying to research those things. Um, and then you get more into the AI and ML as you go further down towards uh, towards Yosef, right? But I, don't, I, I think as an industry, we just haven't gotten there. And one of my favorite favorite examples is OPM. OPM happened in like 2015. Um, I remember sitting in a conference and, and I think it was the CIO talked about that the budget spend for OPM prior to the event was um, $19 million, okay? Out of what, uh, what was their gross? So I, I, I forget. I mean, it's part of the U.S. government, but it's they control all personnel records for all military DOD contractors, everyone. OK. Right. It's pretty significant. Yeah. Nineteen million dollars for cyber. And then two years after the breach, they went up to thirty seven million dollars. I'm like, you know, like that is that's not a real investment. Yeah. If, if you're protecting all PII for all U.S. government contractors, employee, military members. It's just, it's just madness. So um, anyway. Yeah. So you base your, where do you start investing based upon like, well, who, who do I think is most likely to attack? Where are my attacks going to come from? Yeah. It, it's, it's the sophistication of it, right? So like there isn't a scenario, like pretty much if, if a 12-year-old could download an open source toolkit and do it, learn from YouTube to take your network down, like you're, you're, the, you're negligent. <laughs> period. <laughs> right. Um, so first don't be negligent, build a program that's not negligent Buy products that automatically detect those 12 year olds and then grow your program from there. And I want to, I want to, you know, before we wrap, cause we're running low on time, I want to talk a little bit about this like concept of the dependencies in the supply chain, because it was brought up and it's part of this now, you know, the public clouds have this policy, right? Where they like, where do, where do the public clouds invest? Right. They actually invest significantly in physical security because they say, hey, if, if you walk into my server and penetrate me on my side, that's definitely my fault. And they put that blatantly clear on uh, the terms and use policies of shared responsibility, AWS. 
I mean, if, if anyone doesn't believe it, why don't you go try to go into an AWS center and see what happens? <laughs> Things like they're giant concrete, like they look like Fort Knox, every single one of them, right? And then they say on your side, kind of like what you just talked about, like with the banks, with the person's laptop and the computer, like that's your problem, dude. Like, you know what I mean? So like, you know, if you, if you left a computer open in your your kitchen table and your roommate who is a suspected felon of wire fraud were to go in and had access to all your database records on a public cloud and downloaded all of them and did whatever he did with them. You know, the public clouds would look at you and be like, that's on you. They would not say that they did anything wrong. Yep. Right. And so, so how do you guys, because you are, you're supply chain dependent, every company supply chain dependent, nobody owns their data full stack, right? It's created somewhere. It's moved somewhere. It's used somewhere else. That's just how it goes. How do you start protecting all these layers in the supply chain? Or do you have to just trust your vendors and your suppliers and your partners that they're doing the same level of effort as you are and then just kind of go forward because you would, uh, you know, maybe like uh, spin your mind endlessly to like think about <laughs> how many vulnerabilities you truly have in your supply chain. I'll start with Anthony because uh, I always ask questions like that. I basically package 30 of them in one. No, that's right. <laughs> I like the question. I think that the when, when you when you think about when I think about public cloud, right? Like the analogy I like to use is either um, somebody it's it's like a car, right? Like you as the buyer, you're you're using this service, and you you have to assume, and the expectation is that the the parts that go into that car are safe. They're good. Yeah. They meet the standard, right? Now, what the heck you do with that car? As long as you keep it within the operating bounds, right? Yeah. If if I crash my car, I do this thing. It's not Ford's fault. Right. Like it's it's my fault as the operator of the car, how I chose to drive it, use it. Did I take it onto a crazy road or or whatnot? Right. But I think that there is an assumption that the supply chain should meet a minimum level of due diligence and care. Yep. And I don't think that I think the part of the big problem is what we have with vendors is that large scale enterprises refuse to coalesce on a standard set of security questions, acceptability, right? Like JP Morgan, the bank. We would talk to vendors and we know that they were working with JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Citi, Goldman, and we would ask the vendor our set of security questions and we would not accept the fact that they said, well, listen, this is the results from Goldman Sachs's you know, assessment of it and this is the city. We were like, no, 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 no. The way we frame the questions is better. So we're going to do this. So there's just this, this tremendous amount of friction um, of where we don't actually try to get the best value out of the supply chain. We just try to do it our version. Um, and so it, it prevents us from actually making progress in securing the supply chain, in my opinion. Yeah, it's funny you say that the questionnaires is the bane of my existence to begin with. <laughs> it's absurd, right? I remember filling this out for sales proposals too, right? I, I, I remember it's like, yeah. <laughs> oh man, I can, I can feel the pain there. It's amazing how lengthy they can get. And sometimes I feel there's not a lot of value in even responding to those. Maybe there is a little bit, but you know, it, I think, you know, for all the people who love questionnaires, you know, I don't think they're evaluated. I really don't think they're evaluated. I think if someone just says like, did he do it? Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you for the support. Like, I can't believe they actually answered all 3000 questions. All right. Exactly. <laughs> pass them, pass them on, pass them on. It's fine. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, this is, this is one of the, the things that we've been trying to do is, you know, for me, I don't, I don't really get the confidence before we work with a, you know, vendor or before we actually get into a contract without speaking to their security team. Like, you know, let's talk security to security. Let's talk about the things that you currently have, right? Let's talk about the residual, let's talk about the inherent risk. Let's, let's talk about the honest responses for the questions that we have and not the questionnaire format of questions, what we think is appropriate. 
how we do cyber within the company, like we're not saying that you, our expectations are not such that you got to do exactly how we do it. But you got, like Anthony mentioned, like you got to have, you know, due diligence and care, right? You got to set up the baseline somewhere. And if that does, it's not appropriately, you know, captured, then, you know, that's, that's where I lose the confidence. I'm like, okay, I'm, I can go shopping, right? Or you can prove me how exactly you would do this. So that's, that, you know, that, that really helped me out, you know, rather than just relying on the questionnaire responses. You know, it's, it's funny, we like even the, going back to the question, I don't want to beat that too much, but it's like a one-time thing. You, every, every year, you go back to that and, okay, you respond to those questions, but what happens, you know, for the remainder of the year? Yep. And then nothing changed. Nothing, exactly. <laughs> nothing changed. <Yeah. laughs> nothing, nothing changed. I went a whole year without doing anything, so. <laughs> or, or just take the insurance one, too. Like insurance for like cyber insurance questions. Oh, yeah. Like four years ago, they were like, do you have passwords? Yes. All right. We're going to give you a policy. It's like, all right. Like, <laughs> why did we talk? You know what I mean? Like, and that's real. Like those are real. Absolutely. But did you see how that changed now? Like with all the, you know, how, how the questions are much more specific that's coming from the cyber insurance policies. Now it's, it's, it's a totally different game. Only over the last 18 months though. Right. It's, it's only over the last 18 months where people are like, Oh my gosh, we actually have to pay out on this stuff. Right. Let's do a real due diligence. Exactly. But prior to 18 months, like I remember, I won't say which organization, we quite literally had the broker, so many insurance organizations, so many of the underwriters there. And the questions were, do you guys have a password policy? Do you have incident response policy? All right. Do you, do you have a, okay, you have a C, like personnel policy? Like, and it's like, that's how you're gauging our cyber program. Like you guys are going to own this risk, right? Yeah. It's, it's funny. The reason I asked that is like, you know, now they're the, speci- the specificity of the questions is more so what kind of tools do you have? Mm-hmm. What kind of evidence can we get? Yeah. Like, okay, you're talking about the IM. Okay. You have the administrative policy. How does that execute? Yep. What's the system, right? Like, for example, if you talk about Okta, yes, we have the SO system. That's the IM that we enable. Okay. Show me the evidence of that. Yep. And how exactly are the controls enforced on that? So, it's it's good, right, to talk about those. It's good about you know you know validating right the providence about all, how all these different things operate in supply chain. Oh man, you just open a can of worms. Yeah. Work. Like supply chain is just you know by its own, it's just too big a beast for us to deal with. <laughs> but I think well, one thing I'll say is that we look at supply chain in one aspect, which is we're talking about the vendors, we're talking about you know going out and you know trying to you know, get the satisfaction about it, what kind of controls you have. Okay, let's, that's one part. But there's also a big part, which not, not everybody looks at it. There are some leaders still look at this one, and I'm, I'm sure you guys think about this too, is the open source aspect of things. In, in my opinion, that's the supply chain too, right? You do have a community that actually contributes towards that space, and you are actually bringing those in-house and actually building those out, both from a security standpoint and a liability standpoint. You're responsible for something that you actually build in your own products and it has to come into that same ecosystem as you would you know label that as a supply chain that we talk about the bills we talk about the infrastructure at large you know all these things contribute towards that risk all good stuff listen gentlemen i'm glad you guys joined us for the show it was a fun conversation i believe we solved no problems uh but (laughs) hopefully we've provided a framework of how to at least evaluate a problem I, i mean i agree with both of you like these problems are actually not solvable it's just like 
how do you manage them, right? How do you manage cyber? How do you manage and approach it, your methodologies? We did go an hour talking about cyber and nobody said the word zero trust. So I mean, that was, <laughs> that's a pretty positive, right? Zero trust. You just did it, man. <laughs> I believe in it. You should have zero trust. Encrypt everything. Nobody knows anything. You had to say it, Anthony. <laughs> every, every new employee needs a full-on encryption key. We're bringing back RSA tokens. I just remember having that. I, because we now have, you know, how every app now has like two-factor authentication and you're like, get your code. And I'm like, dude, this is bringing me back to the days of RSA, except it's still not that secure because Anthony's just use case right there is the guy has the token. That's exactly <laughs> it. I, what if I have it? <laughs> We've solved no problems, but we had a good time. Gentlemen, I appreciate you joining us today on IT Visionaries. This is going to be a fun episode. I think our audience is going to love it. Awesome. Thanks so much. This was a lot of fun. Awesome. Thanks a lot, guys. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experiences, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with a customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. <laughs>